Hey, Alec. Hey, Cameron. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. I have a question for you. I have an answer. Have you done research at Duke? I have done research at Duke. So have I. That's so weird that we both have done research at Duke. That's 100% rate. You know, the rate at Duke is 50%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I think the rate at Duke is technically 100% because we just did sample size of two and we found 100%. And I think that beats any statistical measures that Duke has done to measure how many students have done research at Duke. That's some pretty good research right there. Yeah. But what I want to know more about is what does research look like at Duke? What does it mean for students, is students just like us? How many of us do research and what does that look like? What are our interactions with the professors that do that research as well? Um, and um, what do we think about like, the impacts of the research that we're performing? So yeah, well, what we wanted to start with was before we even talked to any professors, we just wanted to go around campus and just kind of get the feel of what research means to people, right? So tell me about what you did. So we just went to Perkins and we walked up to students who were studying and we said, hey, what does research mean to you? And some of them responded. And what did they say? They said, Research is using the scientific method to make observations and find out more about the world around us. Uh, so for me, research is uh, trying out new things and uh, experimenting it and then proving that it actually works. So all research is about either pushing the limits of human knowledge or human abilities. I guess just studying a different problem from a lot of different angles to try and find out a solution or learn more about it. It's the opportunity to, to follow kind of a scavenger hunt of resources and materials and, and possibilities to get to an answer. For the listeners, some of these thoughts and quotes probably have come up in your head at some point, especially if you have done research or even just your outside perspective of what research is. But what is research like at Duke more specifically? Exactly. That's what we were trying to find out through the discovery process of making this episode. We decided to talk to three researchers at Duke, Dr. Hutchko, Dr. Cagle, and Dr. Van Migro, to try to understand their research better and learn how students have been involved in their research process. So we're going to talk to these three researchers at Duke in this episode, like you said, Alec. Can you give me a preview as to what's to come, what the listeners should expect in this episode? They should expect research from abroad, research being done about Duke campus, interdisciplinary research involving economics and law and art. And fix my campus issues. I know that's something that all Duke students are very passionate about. That will show up in this episode. I think people will be very excited to hear about what's going on. So before we begin, we should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Alec Ashforth. And I'm Cameron Sadig, and we are the executive producers of Here at Duke, Duke's only podcasting hub on campus. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Since Duke has its own medical school, and since we have the largest hospital in North Carolina, there are plenty of research projects revolving around medicine. One particular area of medicine that is popular among Duke students is global health. So we decided to talk to Dr. Megan Hutchko from the Global Health Institute. The methodology of research that I um, engage in is called implementation science, and it's really about working in partnership with communities and the target population to make sure that these evidence-based interventions are 
are implemented in a way that people understand and uptake and can be sustained and scaled. We worked in partnership with a um, HIV care and treatment program to develop a cervical cancer prevention strategy. Um, and that has continued to grow in partnership with the Ministry of Health in Western Kenya. We also have a project in central Uganda where we're trying to decentralize screening procedures um, and get HPV or human papillomavirus-based testing out to women in rural settings or places where they wouldn't normally have access to screening. Hutchco advises many different research projects related to reproductive and global health. We talked to one student who conducted research on testing for sexually transmitted diseases, such as HPV. My name is Maureen Jaraga. I am a senior studying biology and global health. I am pre-med here at Duke. I took a class with Dr. Hutchko uh, called Global Reproductive Health. And so when I met Dr. Hutchko, uh, she told me she works in Kenya and she has a research project on cervical cancer screening. And it just felt um, kind of like fate. And I'm from Kenya originally. I grew up there. Um, so it was not only a way to um, weave in my interest in going back to my home country, but it was also a way for me to learn more about how I can get involved in women's health research. Maureen traveled to Kenya to conduct research. So I went two years in a row. Um, I went the summer after my sophomore year and then the summer after my junior year. So the first summer is when I was just going to just see how things work on the ground. I said I had an idea at the beginning what I thought I wanted to do based on um, what, we, what I learned in Dr. Hachiko's global reproductive health class. And I knew I was interested in psychosocial support for women. Maureen found that she had to adapt her research to the needs of those communities she worked with in Africa. We had a meeting with uh, what we call stakeholders, which are members of the community, and I realized that my idea actually was not a priority to them uh, at the moment, and really assessing their areas of need from what they see on the ground, it was such a stark difference from what I thought was the area of need. I, that's when I came back and kind of changed everything. So I wanted to see when women are uh, diagnosed with, uh, they're told that they're HPV positive, um, do they go for treatment? And if they don't, what are some of the reasons that they don't access, they're not able to access treatment? And I went out into the field with them multiple times. So I was out collecting data with community health workers um, and analyzing the data with the data manager. Maureen's project involved creating spatial maps for data related to HPV treatment. Then at the end, I was able to present the maps which we created to the county health management team. They were very grateful that we were able to, they were able to visualize some of these variables that we, they, they didn't really think of, um, like the prevalence of HPV in a certain community that they didn't think had that high of a prevalence for HPV, or um, certain communities where women were just much, uh, they were close to an, a treatment center, but there were other variables that were preventing them, even though otherwise you would think distance was not an issue. We talked to another student who focused on the accessibility of global health data. Uh, my name is Samia Sao. Um, I'm majoring in global health and gender sexuality and feminist studies. Um, I'm studying primarily global sexual and reproductive health. So over the summer, I did a Data Plus project called Big Data for Reproductive Health. What we were working on was developing a web-based platform 
for visualiz visualizing um, data, uh, specifically making use of demographic and health survey data, um, as well as focusing on contraceptive discontinuation. Samia's research can visualize important data, such as the prevalence rate of contraceptive use in different countries, and the reason for why women discontinue contraceptive use. So there is um, an incredibly large amount of data available. However, if you're a researcher or an advocate and you don't really have technical programming skills, um, then actually utilizing all of this data is very, very difficult. In doing our research at the beginning of the summer to see what visualization tools already existed, um, a clear gap that we saw that there was nothing that was both, um, that allowed users a lot of flexibility, um, but also allowed users to see something very, very detailed or fine-grained. Both Maureen and Samia started their research projects with a background in global health and developed knowledge of data visualization and computer science through the research process. Another student who works with Professor Hutchko had the opposite experience. My name is Katie Grassi and I'm a senior. I'm in um, a computer science class this semester that focuses on delivering software applications to mm -hmm. different clients. And so my team and I were paired with Professor Hutchko um, and her team at the Duke Global Health Institute to build um, a mobile app for community health volunteers mm -hmm. in Kenya um, to improve the process of data collection for um, cervical cancer screening and testing for women there, okay. which um, is kind of what Professor Hutchko works on um, at the Duke Global Health Institute. Like Maureen, Katie's team had to anticipate and address the needs of people who worked in entirely different environments. I think the biggest challenge is just that we're building this app for community health volunteers in Kenya, and three out of the four members of my team have never been to Kenya, and none of us are community health volunteers, so kind of this idea of building something for someone that isn't you and having to kind of put away your like initial like assumptions about how it should look or how you should be able to use it and trying to you know, talk to these community health volunteers or um, the team in Kenya and get a feel for kind of what the actual environment is there and what they actually need, as opposed to like what we would think to build. One thing that we were not really thinking about is a big thing about the app is data collection. Um, and so we were like, oh, perfect. They can just use this phone, this app on this phone to write down all these answers that a patient's going to give them as part of a survey and then as we thought about it more it's like if this is like a 60 question survey and someone's giving them that survey it's going to be like a really tedious process um, so really working with the team to try to figure out like okay if they answer a question this way can we like change the other question mm -hmm. so then maybe there's only two options instead of 10 or maybe this question just gets like knocked off and that's hard because we don't have a lot of domain knowledge about like the dependencies between if they say this then it means that um, so that was something that we kind of had to work closely with the team, um, and they were awesome, and they gave us like really great resources to do that. By doing research, students have the opportunity to both learn from others and work on real-world issues. Each of these students has contributed to curing cervical cancer, a goal that Professor Hutchko says is within reach. So I'm not involved in like health at all, and I don't really, like that's a lot of domain knowledge that I don't have. Um, so that's, I feel like the cool thing about research is you get to work with a lot of different people and kind of 
learn what they can like offer in terms of like their knowledge and then you can try to offer something that you have too and so it's kind of cool that like whole collaborative process of people all kind of chipping in their different um, abilities to kind of create this new finding. While the global health research done by Dr. Hutchko, Samia, Maureen, and Katie may have focused on addressing issues abroad, there's also research being done by students and professors that's more focused on tackling Duke-specific problems. And what better way to find these problems than through the Fix My Campus Facebook page? Earlier in the semester, there were several posts on the Fix My Campus Facebook page about birds colliding into Duke's glass buildings. Whenever we had bird collisions, it was either near uh, Bondi or on that West Union sort of glass entryway. That's Jacob Euclea. He works with the administration for Fix My Campus. We sort of serve as the liaisons between students and the administration, so depending on what they voice, that's what we, I guess, try to tackle. But this semester, we all tried to take up individual projects on top of just student suggestions. In my case, it was that we kept he hearing this issue about birds and we kept reacting, saying, we'll let you guys know, but we really never got that response that we hoped for, so I sort of wanted to take this up as my own project, seeing a few birds on my own walking through West Union and a few other facilities and realizing like just how prevalent of an issue this can be. In the process of trying to understand how they could go about addressing this issue, Jacob talked to a researcher at Duke who has been studying bird collisions for a while. I'm Nicolette Cagle, and I'm faculty in the Nicholas School of the Environment here at Duke. I'm an ecologist, a natural historian, and an environmental educator. Currently, right now, I'm working on bird window collisions research. Initially, I was brought into a large-scale one-year study on bird window collisions that was led by Augustana College in Illinois. And this was in 2014. And I was brought in by a then-PhD student named Natalia Ocampo-Penuela. And in this one-year project, Duke turned out to have the highest number of bird window collisions out of all 40 institutions that were included across North America. And this really piqued my interest as a landscape ecologist, and I've been working on the project ever since. So, for example, in just nine weeks during fall and spring migration, we can see over a hundred bird window collisions at just six buildings on campus. That's when the Fix My Campus Facebook page started getting more posts about the birds. I think it's important to think about why Duke is in this predicament. First, Duke's University in the forest. So what this actually means is that Duke has habitats and this is a good thing. We have 7,000 acres of the Duke Forest. Birds are coming here. We're on the Atlantic Flyway, one of four major migration routes in North America. So the birds want to stop here and they have food and they have resources. But the problem is Duke also has a lot of buildings and a lot of new buildings. And new buildings have giant panes of glass. When the birds see this glass, they either think that they can just fly right through it or it's reflecting trees. And so they think that they are flying into good habitat. In order to better understand where on campus birds were colliding into windows, 
and which part of these buildings these collisions occur, Cagle's research needs to collect a lot of data, so she decided to enlist the help of Duke students. There are a lot of ways that students can become involved in the work. Uh, one is that each spring and fall, students can participate essentially in citizen science. They can observe bird windows on campus by contacting me, Nicolette Cagle, and, and basically go out and survey buildings. We talked to one of the students that helped her with this. My name is Trey Locke and I'm a senior here at Duke studying history. I'm in the environmental science and policy 102 class um, and so the professor who runs the bird collision study came to our class and offered like told us about the study and kind of like Duke's history with it and why they were doing the study at Duke and then um, told students we could get involved in helping with the data collection um, and it was also an extra credit opportunity so we went to environment hall to pick up the materials and basically we had um, a clipboard and we had to download this app um, that helps identify the different birds um, and so there's a route that you walk and so I went and met my partner and then we started walking the route and it goes around most of the main buildings on campus um, and you walk really slowly and kind of separate from each other and then walk around the corridor of each building and um, if you find a dead bird then you basically um, like mark where you found it and what time you found it at and then you uh, take a picture of it and upload it to this app and the app helps identify whatever the bird is and then they also use that data to do like a heat map basically of where all the different birds are hitting the windows around campus. I was hoping that we weren't going to find anything and then we actually at the very first building we went to we found um, two dead birds. Um, I think we maybe found three in total um, on our day which I think might be a lot because <laughs> um, I talked to a lot of other people who didn't find any. So. While some research is simply meant to answer a specific big question, Kegel is also trying to use her research to prevent bird deaths from these collisions. The reason this part is so important is that you know, bird window collisions kill over a billion birds in the United States every year. Uh, there are not many things that cause more bird deaths. Habitat loss can cause more bird deaths because the birds have no place to live. And cats can cause um, a pretty large number of bird deaths too. But bird window collisions, this is something that we can fix. And there are methods available, which Dr. Cagle's research has found, that reduce the number of these bird collisions. Given the findings, uh, I think that the practical lessons here are that all new buildings on campus should have glass with UV reflecting coating or patterns on them at least every four to six inches. And this is to stop birds from colliding with those windows. And the second lesson is that buildings that have already been built that have these very large panes of window glass should have bird deterrent films applied immediately. Having that pattern, pattern on the glass or the UV reflection on the glass is of critical importance. So this is totally solvable. And all we have to do is kind of convince the administration that this is a priority for students on campus and a priority moving forward in the long term. 
It's also not like the Duke administration has been entirely closed off to these ideas in the past. One building that has been the cause of a lot of bird deaths on campus is CMS, which is also known as the Fitzpatrick Center. And a dedicated group of undergraduate and graduate students were able to mitigate some of the effects from that uh, building by working with the Duke administration to apply this bird deterrence window film. But we know that strikes are still happening at buildings that aren't a formal part of our study yet, and strikes are still occurring at the Fitzpatrick Center in places where that film hasn't been applied. Cagle seems to have more of a communication problem, which students could help address, both in terms of big actions. The administration at some point had decided that new buildings on campus would have either UV reflecting coatings or patterns on them, but the communications with um, architects and the people that are playing these new buildings have, haven't been such that we can ensure that this is actually happening. So there, what we probably need is a group of dedicated students to all continually work with architects and building planners to make sure that this happens. We look at our West Union building, for instance. I get a lot of reports on building on birds hitting that building, and um, we don't have any contacts there to work on reducing those collisions yet, so that's, that would be a key place to work next. And in smaller ways. Just keep reporting it if you see it. I mean, the more posts that we get, the more we can also relay that sentiment because we don't want this issue to stop being reported and stop being acknowledged because we this is an ongoing project. And similarly with everything else, just keep contacting and reporting things to the Fix My Campus page so we can uh, try to implement them. The study itself is really cool because I think it's just a bigger example of us thinking about how um, our university being located in the middle of this forest, like what that means for the plants and habitat and animals that are surrounding us and um, how we're in relationship to them. With the previous two research groups, you may have noticed that their projects were primarily focused around one specific field of study. Dr. Cagle centered her bird research around environmental science, while Dr. Hutchka focused on global health. However, some research is much more interdisciplinary, connecting many different fields of study. One professor that's trying to be this connector of fields is Dr. Hans von Migro. I've been here at Duke already for about 30 years. Um, I'm specialized in uh, teaching and research on arts and markets. I'm trained uh, as an art historian in Belgium and I uh, came to the United States as a Fulbright and then I started once at Duke I started working together with Neil Demarkin Department of Economics and we have been working together for the past uh, 20 years until uh, Neil uh, went uh, on retirement but our the core of our studies are really uh, uh, bringing together uh, economics really with the study of art and art history and the model is really one of uh, teamwork. So uh, most of the research I'm doing is, is really with relatively large teams uh, whereby we combine scholars and students from diverse backgrounds that could be from the humanities, from the social sciences, from the sciences. And the objective is basically to uh, learn from each other, but also to bring together 
new methodologies or to create new methodologies on that interface of this, this major discipline. In order to combine these fields, Professor Van Migro and Professor Neil DiMarchi founded DALMI, the Duke Art, Law and Markets Initiative. Yeah, DALMI is basically has grown out of that research because we were doing a lot of research on, on art uh, markets and DALMI, DALMI, as the word says itself, it's art, uh, law and markets. Uh, the art component is very straightforward because if you study art markets, you study art. I mean, that's basic. But markets is something else and art markets are the least or among the least regulated in the world. So you need to understand better the regulatory environment. And this is where the law component comes in. And, and because we need to know from that perspective, what are really the, the legal constraints uh, in uh, these markets and how do we factor that in when assessing uh, local markets. So that's basically what Dalmi initially wanted to do. So we, we then began to go on a trajectory of inviting scholars from all over the world. We, have, we, we basically form a sort of a virtual international community of people. And uh, we come together here at Duke every six months. Through the Dalmi initiative, Van Migro decided to create a Basque Connections project to provide opportunities for students to study within this field of cultural economics. Um, the Basque Connections project on creative industries is a logical result of our research uh, in art markets because we, 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 we study a lot of markets all over the world, but we began also to de develop an interest in what, what's going on in Europe. Uh, which is basically our, our city that surrounds us. So it's very important also for us that we're beginning to pay serious attention to that more than just do research on it. So the point was, okay, we're looking at art markets, but let's broaden our horizon here a bit. Let's look at cultural industries uh, or creative industries as defined by, by Richard Florida. Richard Florida's book, The Rise of the Creative Class, provides the core scholarship for the Basque Connections research. His book contains a range of claims about what makes a city successful. Labelly chose Florida as our starting point to begin to look at the local culture. It's really all about understanding uh, the creative uh, industries in Durham and to really see what effect they have on the development of Durham as a city and whether or not cultural initiatives have really profound effect on the quality of life, but also um, on a very micro level, does it really work in terms of uh, a, a better life for people, better income, better housing, and so on and so forth. So we decided to speak to one of the students in this Basque Connections group. My name is Marina Frateroli. I'm a senior here at Duke. I'm double majoring in art history and religious studies. So I went to my class, the history of art markets with Professor Van Mugroot, and um, I had found online that there was a Duke Art Law and Markets Initiative, and I had wanted to um, get involved with the intersection of art and law, so I thought that would be very interesting. And then after class, I went to his office with the TAs, and I, was, I asked them if there are any opportunities to research within the Duke Art, Law, and Markets Initiative. And they said, yes, we have a Basque Connections project. We'd love for you to join. Through the creative class theory of urbanist Richard Florida, 
Marina works with Professor Von Migro and nine other students, ranging from undergraduate sophomores to third-year PhDs. The DALMI uh, and the, the Creative Industries uh, uh, research as part of the BAS connection is also an opportunity to bring in students on various levels of their uh, education to work in teams. So my courses have never been exclusive. So my graduate courses are always accessible to undergraduates and my undergraduate courses are always accessible to graduates. It makes it a lot better because these groups have sometimes more to teach to each other than we do. Professor Van Migro has a unique approach to the structure of this Basque Connections group. Essentially, everyone in the group performs research through the lens of Richard Florida's theory. However, each person picks a specific aspect of his theory to create their own project. So I've done two research projects with Basque Connections at this point. The first one was um, a research on Latinos in Durham. And so we're looking at a theorist, Richard Florida, and his ideas on how cities can grow. He has claims um, about what can make a city successful, and one of the things that he says makes a city successful is integration. So he measures foreign-born people and how they're integrated into the city. He claims that his foreign-born index is an accurate way of measuring integration, and we looked at Durham and we saw that his indices were very lacking in how they measured the integration of Durham. She found that Florida's metrics weren't as accurate for Durham, given the city's rise in Latino population. So when we took this way of measuring things to Durham, we found that it was more complicated than that because the foreign-born didn't actually measure racial diversity. There was a lot of Latino people who were... There were, na there were neighborhoods that were distinct from other neighborhoods, but that was not on the grounds of foreign-born. It was on the grounds of racial group. So that didn't account for the black population for the American-born Latino population. So really his, for his method of measuring the integration had a lot of limitations that we saw when we were measuring Durham. We're studying someone who's very well regarded. There's lots of articles and books written about him and by him that are very prestigious. So when you come in as a 20-year-old, it can be intimidating to try to critique their scholarship, but when you have the team and the research and the more experienced people, they help you to find your voice. In total, Marina spent a year analyzing this topic. In the process, she learned more than just the limitations of Florida's theories. So I think that research has been one of the best things that I've done to inform my academic interests. I think that when you get to engage with material on such a deep level as research, you get to see the intimate details of what it actually means to study something. So you can say, oh, you know, I'm interested in, you know, art, law, policy, but when you're actually forced to look at it, you know, look at what, like, what did the Durham City Council put forward? How has that affected urban policy? You get to see what it's actually like to live that life in academia, and you can see, like, how those things that you're interested in actually affect the real world. And I just think it's very cool to have the opportunity to take your interests and apply them in a specific way to learn something real. The benefits are obvious. I mean, it's, it's widening your horizon. 
realizing that new matter is not the only matter. Uh, we learned that too in the beginning, working together with the economists. Econo economists learned that from working together with art historians. We work now together with mathematicians, basically statisticians, and uh, we also have connections in engineering and, and computer science. To be able to, to get that wide horizon, to be able really to bring in methodologies that come from different angles and that are on the surface sometimes contradictory. But it, it's exactly that contradiction that creativity resides. Creativity needs a little bit of contradiction, a little bit of chaos in order to uh, come to something new. And, and so the best advice is to keep curiosity going, to keep creativity going. Crea creativity is a very important part, not only of research life, but for human life in general. And here too, my only advice would be keep it real. That's it. <laughs>